Today I'll be reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 2 through 7. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their men hide their face, he was despised, and was and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. Hey, church, good morning. Look at your neighbor and say, hey, how you doing? How you doing? Hey, if this is your first time at uh, Taproot, welcome. Welcome to our church. My name is Luis, and I am one of the pastors. And uh, again, if this is your first time here, uh, we're so glad you're here. On the back of every single chair, you'll see a little connect card. If you can, before you leave, grab that card, fill that out, and drop it off at the welcome bus in the foyer. And uh, <laughs> still funny, huh? <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know what else to call it. It is a bus. So... Anyway, so uh, as you do that, we have a small gift to give you just to say, welcome to our church. We're so glad that you are here. Um, I want to go ahead and uh, just pray for our sermon. But uh, before we pray, I also want to uh, take a second a moment to pray for Mark Dauenhauer. Mark is going into surgery tomorrow morning, 6.20 a.m. He's going to get a bionic hip and... Uh, so I know he's a little nervous, and uh, we want to pray for him. So uh, let's pray for Mark. Let's pray for uh, the preaching of God's word, and then we'll get rolling. So if you're, if you're maybe around Mark, would you just kind of get close, uh, put your hand on him, and let's pray for this brother, and then let's, uh, let's pray that God would bless the preaching of his word, and uh, we can go from there, okay? Well, let's pray, you guys. Father, I thank you for your people. It is a joy it is an honor to gather with the people of God. Uh, Father, we thank you for Mark. He is a faithful brother. He is a faithful servant. I, uh, anybody that knows him knows that he is a blessing. Uh, he loves you well. He is a, a, a good husband. He's a good man. He works hard. And Father, I just pray that tomorrow as he goes into surgery, Lord, that you would, you would give him a peace you would help, help him to not be anxious, God, to not be uh, worried or preoccupied, Lord. Father, we pray for the, the team that is going to be operating on him. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless them, Lord. Uh, would you use them, God? I pray that everything would go smoothly, Father. 
Lord, I pray that uh, recovery would, would be uh, easy in a sense that the, there will be no complications, no hiccups along the road to recovery. So just uh, I pray for uh, uh, tomorrow morning, the surgery, the, uh, the, the recovery afterwards. God, would you, would you cover that whole thing, Lord? And uh, just be with Mark, be with Tammy, give them uh, just uh, peace and just uh, no anxiety and just total rest in you, God. And uh, we thank you that we get to come alongside of him as a part of our family, Lord. Pray for him and uh, tell him that we love him and we just care for him as a brother. And Father, we pray for the preaching of your word. Would you use me somehow? May your words go forward and may they accomplish what only they can. May your spirit move. May Jesus be the centerpiece. May you be glorified, and may Tapper Church in Burien be a little outpost of heaven this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you, Mark, even though you're a Sounder fan. It's okay, we did, we did lose on Friday night, so no, no big deal. <laughs> no big deal. Um, Anyways, we are, uh, this is Sermon 11 of our summer sermon series that we simply call The Great Story. We've got only a few more sermons to go to kind of wrap up this uh, series. And what we have been doing is throughout the summer, we've been taking these, uh, these big stories, these big sections in the Bible, and we have been uh, plugging them into the overarching storyline of Scripture. You'll remember, remember that uh, we've been saying that the Bible tells us one great and one unified story. And what we've been seeing is that the, the storyline of Scripture can be divided into four categories, which are uh, four big words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Last week, we saw the role of the period of the kings in this storyline. So in this 500-year period of the kings in Israel's history, we saw good kings and we saw bad kings. And we saw that they are meant to point us to the perfect king, who is Jesus. We saw the Davidic covenant where God told David that there would be one of his descendants who would rule and reign on the throne forever. And we saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. We also saw that kings point us to the fact that we need a perfect king who can transform our hearts. Earthly kings are good. We should desire and pray for good leaders. We should vote for them. We should be engaged in those processes. We should care about those processes, be informed. But at the same time, we must remember that no earthly king can transform our sinful hearts. So we should not place our hope in them, but our hope should be placed in Jesus because Jesus, King Jesus, is the only one who can save us from sin and who can give us new life and transform our lives. So this morning we will come to the role into the period of the prophets. These guys had a very unique and specific role in the history of Israel. And they were also very strange and peculiar and bizarre people. 
Ever read the story of Isaiah who stripped off all of his clothes and wandered around naked? You can find that story in Isaiah chapter 20. Or maybe the story of Jeremiah who not only hid his underwear in a rock, but then went back to retrieve it after, quote, a long time. (laughs) Jeremiah 13. Or what about Ezekiel? Ezekiel, who laid on his side after crafting some clay art depicting Jerusalem's future, and after 390 days had passed, he rolled over and did it again. But as strange as these guys were, and that is just a few examples, these guys declared unique things to Israel. Today we are going to focus our attention on primarily on what they foretold, and we are going to see how that fits into the great storyline of Scripture. So let's do just quickly a bit of context and background work, and let's look at the prophets, their times, and their books. Now what's, what's intriguing about the prophets that doesn't get talked about much is that their, their time frame actually began way before the kings and it lasted long after the kings. Usually when we talk about the prophets, we talk about the, the written prophets. There were 15 of them who wrote books. But I don't want you to miss that even though as as we've gone through our study in this series, we have seen and we have felt the, the prophets at work. The Bible actually calls Abraham and Moses and David prophets. During the time of the kings, we felt Nathan's influence, the prophet Nathan's influence when he confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba. And he also, Nathan, declared to David all the points of the Davidic covenant. We also talked about King Ahab and his idolatrous wife, Jezebel. Elijah and Elisha were prophets during this time. And and this whole thing is highlighted when Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, which is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. And then you you get to the last Old Testament prophet who was not a written prophet, and that was John the Baptist. While we might read of John in the New Testament, he most certainly is considered an Old Testament prophet, and we're going to see some of his thoughts today. But like I said, when we talk about, when we think about the prophets, we most often think of the written prophets. If you were to grab your Bible, turn to the table of contents, you would see What I mean, the prophets who wrote books go from Isaiah to Malachi. And you've got to know as well that these books are not listed in chronological order, which which can make them a bit difficult to read if you don't know what's happening in their context and in the time that they are writing. These guys can be divided into two major categories, major prophets and minor prophets. Now, you might think that that means that one is like a big boy varsity squad type of prophet, and the other is like just a little pot of one learner. But that's not the case. Major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And those guys are given those titles because of the length of what they wrote. Their books are just bigger than the minor prophets. 
Now, while there is some debate on when each book was written, generally the prophets Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and Zechariah wrote before the Assyrian invasion. Isaiah and Micah wrote in the time of the invasion. The prophets Nahum, Sephaniah, and Habakkuk wrote before the Babylonian invasion to Jerusalem. And finally, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel wrote during the time of that invasion. And lastly, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi wrote after the Babylonian invasion. And the timeline for the prophets is 875 to 430 B.C. So that's, that's the background, that is the, the foundation, that is the, the timeline, who are the major prophets, who are the minor, who wrote which books, who wrote when. Now what is their role? When you hear the word prophet, what do you think of first? Most of us think of like a fortune teller. Is that true? We think of somebody who's going to tell us the future. Now, that is what a prophet means in many cultures, but not in the Bible. While the prophets did sometimes speak about the future, they are way more than simply fortune tellers. So how should we think of them? Well, these guys were simply Israelites who had this radical encounter with God's presence, and then they were commissioned to go and speak on God's behalf as his representatives. Now, in the book of the law, God gave them these standards, and this is on the screen. They could not teach the people to serve any other God but the one true God, Yahweh. God would put his own words in the prophets' mouths. And their words and prophecies must come true or else they were not true prophets. And finally, they proclaimed the importance of faithfulness to the covenant of God with his people. And the people of Israel were to heed, to listen, and to obey them. So from these Standards, you can get a pretty good idea or understanding of their role. The thing that the prophets cared about the most was this covenant, this, this relationship between God and his people. God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, and God had invited the Israelites to become this nation of justice, this nation of generosity. Because this would represent, this would reflect God's character to the nations all around them. They were supposed to be this this beacon of light, this beacon of justice, this beacon of generosity. We will come back to that thought a bit later. Now, the the covenant would, would require that all Israelites were to give their complete trust and allegiance to the God of heaven alone. But you know the story. Israel's leaders, the priests, the judges, the kings, they led Israel astray and they broke the covenant. So the prophets were to, to speak to the people on behalf of of God. Because the leaders of Israel led Israel astray to break the covenant, God sent the prophets to speak on God's behalf. 
The prophet's main function in the Old Testament was to serve as God's representative or ambassador by communicating God's word to his people. True prophets never spoke on their own authority, never shared their personal opinions, but rather they delivered the message of God himself to the people of God. They were God's mouthpiece. They spoke as the, to the people as the mouthpieces of God to remind them of God's promises as well as God's judgments. And their message had four points. First, they were constantly accusing Israel for violating the terms of their covenant. They were constantly confronting Israel with their shortcomings. And the charges usually included idolatry, alliances with other nations and their gods, allowing injustices towards the poor. And you can say that the prophets were like prosecuting attorneys or covenant lawyers. Because a a prosecuting attorney is in a court of law declaring how the person on trial violated or broke the law. Prophets were attorneys for the court of heaven, standing on the side of God, declaring God's concerns for his people's sin. And they would do this by reminding the people of God that they were God's people. Remember, this was not some arbitrary nation who had no connection with God. These were the people that God had chosen in Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15. These were the people that God declared that they were to be a blessing to all the nations around them. And instead of being a blessing, they were a disgrace to the name of God. Instead, they did not honor the name of God. They broke The covenant. They did not keep their end of the deal. And so they had to be reminded of who they were. They also had to be reminded that they had sinned against God. These people had seriously violated the laws and the commands of God. From offering sacrifices to idols. To even sacrificing their own children. These guys were in a state of serious moral and spiritual decline. They had sinned against God. And God used the prophets to declare this. And because of their sin, the prophets came declaring judgment. This was the second point of their message. They came stating that God was coming to deal with their sin. You know this, church. We choose our sin. We don't get to choose our consequences. And God would use, in this case, foreign nations as judgment and as consequences for their sin. The nation's lack of response and unfaithfulness to God brought about a most tragic end. These guys were going to be invaded. These guys were going to be captured. These guys were going to be exiled. So you can understand why the prophets were not the most popular guys in Israel. And even this morning, nobody's cheering loudly. We're talking about being accused of sin. We're talking about judgment. 
not the most popular sermon. These guys were not going to win or be, be voted most likely. These were the guys who were seeing this great decline, great darkness and chaos, and they were speaking words of judgment to come. And this is why they are begging the nation of Israel to repent. Ezekiel 14 says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from your abominations. So repentance was the the calling card for the prophets. This was the third point in their message. And repentance simply means to, to turn around. They were calling the people to see their sin and calling them to repent, to turn back to God in His ways. The prophets were were pleading with Israel to repent, and they warned them time and time again of the judgment that was to come. And these guys spoke of God's mercy to forgive them if they would just confess and turn their ways. Now, the last thing we'll consider is this. They also spoke, not only only did they accuse, not only did they speak of judgment, not only did they speak of the need for repentance, but they spoke of a time, a future day of renewal after judgment. Some called them seers or announcers of the things to come. And as we have seen throughout this entire series, there is this line from Genesis 3.15 that goes throughout the entire Bible. There is a coming hero who will make all the sad things come undone. After the fall, redemption and restoration will happen. Things will not always be as they are. Things will not always be chaotic. One day there will be no more pain. One day there will be no more sadness. One day there will be no more death. One day there will be no more idolatry. One day there will be no more isms that contradict the gospel. One day there will be no more corruption. That day will come. And we saw this in God's promise to Abraham, that he would have a son. And this son would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And it's really no different when you read the prophets. While judgment is coming, so is redemption. So is restoration. In spite of the failings of God's people, God's promise will stand. He will redeem. He will ultimately restore. God's promises will not fail to his people. And the Bible is filled with places that speak of God being faithful to his covenant. Let me read you one of those places. The book of Jeremiah says this in chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand 
to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant, declares the Lord, that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. God says, no matter what you've done, I will be with you. My promise still stands. Habakkuk says this, For the earth will be filled with knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So after the fall, after judgment, yes, there is redemption, there is restoration coming. But sadly, we know of Israel in Judah's history that they did not repent, that they did not listen to their prophets. Actually, most of them chose to ignore the prophet's message. And we would never do that, would we? We would never listen to the word of God. We would never listen to godly counsel and advice and ignore it and disregard it and go against it. So God, as a consequence and as the judgment, used enemy nations, Assyria and Babylon, as Like I said, consequence and judgment for their sin and disobedience. And the nation of Israel was almost completely wiped out. But eventually, like the prophets declared, they returned to the land. They began to rebuild the nation under Ezra and Nehemiah's leadership. Judgment came, but also a sort of redemption and restoration took place. But it was incomplete. So the prophet's message had four points. They accused Israel of violating the terms of their covenant. They had broken their end of the deal. They had disobeyed God. So they came declaring judgment. They came asking the people to repent. And they said that after judgment, there would also be renewal and restoration. But this all leads us to their main message. This is what the prophets foretold. We're going to quickly look at a couple passages to see this, and then we'll, do, we'll talk about application. If you've got your Bibles, do me a favor and open them to the book of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to look just at the first few Verses Isaiah chapter 11. I want you to see this here with me. This is the prophet's main message. This is what the prophets foretold. Look at what the Bible says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. And his delight shall be in the fear of God. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. 
Now quickly, flip over to Jeremiah, just really fast. Jeremiah 23, just two verses. Look at what the Bible says, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares God, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. So the prophets over and over and over proclaim of this coming one. And what you notice in both of these texts is that the coming one will be one who is from this righteous branch. He will be from the line of Jesse, David's family, which we saw last week in 2 Samuel. He will be a signal that this is the Lord's doing. And again, this, this portrait of the coming one should not surprise us in this series. We have seen him in the coming conqueror of Satan in Genesis 3.15. We have seen him as the coming son who would bless all the nations of the world in Genesis 12.3. We've seen him as the coming deliverer like Moses in the Exodus. We have seen him as the coming king on David's throne. And now we see him as the coming righteous branch who will bring peace to the people of God. Be everything from their conquering champion to their king. And he will finally restore all things for the glory of God. And the question is this. Who or what were the Israelites looking for? Last week we said that when the Jews hear of the coming king, they think of this one word, Messiah. When they think of their conqueror and king, they were and still are to some degree looking for this military and political leader who will restore Israel. But Isaiah the prophet who proclaimed more about this coming Messiah than any other prophet speaks of the way that he will come. And he describes him like this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore. And finally, the most famous messianic prophecy was Isaiah 53, which was the scripture that Josh read this morning. Throughout Isaiah's prophecy, there is this word of one coming. But in chapter 53 of Isaiah, it takes a weird twist. He's not going to come like this military and political leader with pomp and prestige. He's not going to be overly handsome like King Saul that we would notice him. He would be despised and rejected by men. He would be beaten and bruised and crushed. This does not sound very Messiah-like, does it? And it was this way because this was God's will. To crush him because every single one of us, Israel included, 
have gone astray like sheep. It was this passage that caused many to see the Messiah's coming as the suffering servant. So the main message of the prophets was this, the Messiah will come and he will redeem and he will restore all things. He is coming to proclaim judgment and peace. He's coming to declare restoration through repentance. He is coming to save and destroy. But this is clear. The Messiah is coming. Now the last written prophet was Malachi. And Malachi spoke of the coming one. And the last words in his book tells us that before he comes, one final prophet will come. And he calls him Elijah. Malachi said that this coming one, this coming hero was coming to judge, but after judgment, he would also restore. Again, you see this unique blend of judgment and then restoration, and then things go silent. For 400 years, no prophets spoke until one day, A wild-eyed man who wore camel's hair and ate wild honey and locust shows up like the Old Testament prophets before him, declaring that the Messiah was coming. But not only that, that he was here. This guy was John the Baptist, which Jesus himself said in Matthew 17 was the Elijah that Malachi talked about. Now, John did not see himself as a prophet, but he knew that he was crying out for Jesus. One day, Jesus goes out to the wilderness to be baptized by John. And when John sees Jesus coming, this is what he said. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. John's message was the same as the prophets before him. The Messiah is coming. You better repent and get ready. The only difference in John's time was that the Messiah was here. All that the prophets had declared came to fruition in Jesus. So the prophet's message was this. There is a coming one. The hero will come until we get to John. And John says, he is here. So let's talk about Jesus real quick. Remember this. The Old Testament prophet was the mouthpiece of God to the people. This is why the prophet often prefaced his words by saying what? Thus says the Lord. The prophet spoke words of indictment against the people for their sin. The prophets called them to repentance. The prophets pronounced restoration and the forgiveness of God. Now, Jesus, as the final and all-sufficient prophet, has fulfilled all the points of the Old Testament prophet's message. He came not just proclaiming the Word of God, He Himself was the Word of God. He came to the world because of sin. He proclaimed judgment. Luke says this, unless you repent, you will all perish. And by that word, he meant the final judgment of God on those who don't repent. He proclaimed our need to repent and believe in him. And finally, he proclaimed the forgiveness of sin, restoration. So you see, Jesus himself, like the prophets, proclaimed judgment, but then redemption and restoration. So church, here is the gospel. We are rebels. 
we sin. We turn against a good and holy God, just like Israel. We are in this special relationship with God. We've got direct access to God the Father because of Jesus. And we, instead, pursue all kinds of different things, seeking in them to give us what only God is meant to give us. And because God is holy, there are consequences for sin. There is judgment, wrath. The Bible says in the book of Romans that the wages for sin is death. But Jesus, Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live, we won't live. He died in our place, in the place that we deserved to be. He died the death that we deserved because of our sin. And then he conquered death, sin, and the grave with his resurrection. And he, church, is the only way to life. If you want to flourish, if you want Shalom, if you want wholeness, if you want a full and rich life, this is the way. He is the way, and His way is not just good, it's not just better, it's best. The gospel is that you and I continue often to perform poorly, but we are treated very kindly by God. We are wicked. And God treats us lavishly, wonderfully, insanely good by God. The good news of the gospel is that we, through the cross of Jesus, are brought to God himself. And then there is restoration. God himself is restored in our lives to be the centerpiece of all that we do. He is the gospel. God is the good news. What we gain most through the forgiveness of Jesus on the cross is God himself. In heaven, yes, but now. And this affects everything that we do. As individuals, we are at peace with God because of Jesus. So we aren't trusting in our good deeds, our high positions, our intellect to save us. We have sole confidence that Jesus has come. And we are now under the power of the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to live anymore under the power of sin. So immorality, lust, anger, impatience, jealousy, bitterness, and discontentment don't have to rule you and me anymore because we've been set free. We can finally say no to sin and yes to Jesus. But it also means that we will one day look forward to the completion of Jesus' restorative work when we breathe our last. And in that moment, we will be in the presence of God forever. No more sin, no more effects of sin, no more back pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more hitting agendas because of selfish ambition and greed. We will be with the Lord, and His restorative work will be finished. And that gives us great hope. So that's a lot of information. I just talked about the context and the background of the, pro the, the prophets. We talked about the standards of what it meant to be a prophet. We talked about the prophet's main message. We talked about what they foretold. And we talked about how Jesus fulfills everything that they said. So what do you do with all this information? 
Because if it's just information, no life change, then what's the point? Right? Let me say the first thing. First, if you are here and you have not trusted in Jesus to save you from your sin, the prophet's message is for you. Turn from sin. Turn to Jesus. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom and we believe that he has come. Jesus entered human history born to a virgin, born in the obscure town of Nazareth to be raised by ordinary parents. God becomes man and Jesus comes to live the life that we can't live, the life of perfection. He had no sin. He had no failure, no fault, no flaw of any kind. He revealed himself to be God. He loved, he healed, he encouraged, he blessed, he unburdened. He brought the kingdom of God. And what did we do? We murdered him. And in that moment, God took the worst evil and turned it into our greatest good. Jesus suffered and died in your place for your sins. Three days later, he rose again. And rather than coming as a political king or military general, he came in the form of a servant, willingly to give up his life for his people. He came to die in order to be the champion of God's people and pay for all eternity the penalty of their sin, which was death. He overcame our biggest problem, and then he gives us hope for this life and power to live in a new way. And he restores us into a relationship with God that will never end. So if you are not a follower of Jesus, you should turn to him today in humble submission. That's the most appropriate response. He's come. He's the king. You should believe in him. By doing that, you'll be forgiven of your sin. You'll be reconciled to God, given Christ's righteousness, and become a partaker in the kingdom work. And you should submit to him now. Because there's a coming day when all his enemies, those who do not believe in his kingship, will bow their knee, but in humiliation. Every knee will one day bow before King Jesus. It might as well be today that you submit to him. But also maybe you're a Christian. And maybe you are a Christian who is struggling. Maybe you are a Christian who is stuck in habitual sin. Maybe you are a Christian who is stuck in this cycle of sin. Let me say to you, Christian, there is hope. There is forgiveness. There is a better way. There is power. There is transformation. And it all begins... with repentance. It all begins with you exposing that sin. It all begins with you bringing light into that darkness. Josh talked about some of that today. So if that's you, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to be stuck. So the prophet's message is for you as well. Turn. Turn run to Jesus today. Let 
vulnerability, in honesty, in openness, win the day today. There is power for you to live a new life because of Christ. There is restoration. There is renewal. And that is for you. So that is the first way to respond. Second way, I would say this. As a people, the church, we are ambassadors. We are representatives of God, declaring to the world the good news of Jesus. Take that in for a second. I heard somebody say one day that the church is the hope of the world. Why? Because we have been entrusted with the gospel. So we, like the prophets, are to be a mouthpiece for God. And we have been commissioned to go and speak on God's behalf as his representatives. And what was the prophet's main message? Jesus. He's coming. He's coming. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his ways. Now, church, this is our our mission as a church. This is our mission as followers of Jesus. We are to make disciples of Christ. We should desire to see people come to know Jesus and experience life with Him. We should should pray for this. We should long to see this, to see people reorient their lives around the person of Christ. Listen, I, I weakly assume that there are people in this very room that do not know Jesus. That's why we share the gospel every single week because that should be happening. This is what we should be doing. Why? That's the mission we've been entrusted with. And why in the world would you want to participate in this mission just like the prophets to be a mouthpiece for God about Jesus? Why? Listen, do you really believe that Jesus is the answer to all things? I mean, I'm I'm serious. Ask yourself that question. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that Jesus is the way to flourish? Do you really believe that Jesus' ways are better? Do you believe that Jesus can transform lives? Has Jesus transformed your life? Do you believe that Jesus is the way to bring order into chaos? Do you believe that he is in the business of restoration and healing and redemption? If you answered yes to any of those things, people need that. All around you, your neighbors, people you work with, people you go to school with, people that your kids play sports with, they need this. But do you also believe There is judgment. We don't talk about that a bunch. We get weird when we use that phrase. But it's true. So church, listen, all I'm asking you to do do today is this. You got to remember that you are to be an ambassador and a representative of the king. You are to be a mouthpiece for God. And it all can be as easy as this. Love your neighbor. Engage people 
with his life through your life. Be lavishly hospitable to the people around you. Be a provocative friend. People should ask questions. Why do you make the choices you make? Why do you live the way that you do? Share, share your story. Listen to people's stories and see how they can connect God's great story. Be the church everywhere and every day and may our faith be irresistible. One last thing as a means of application. We ought to be a people who bring justice to injustice. I said earlier that the thing that the prophets cared about the most was the covenant, this relationship between God and the Israelites. They had been rescued from slavery in Egypt and and God had invited them to become this nation of justice and generosity because this was going to be a witness to the unbelieving nations around them. And you know the rest of the story. They fail to do this. And so God uses the prophets to make known the holiness of God, the covenant obligations, to denounce injustice, idolatry, empty ritualism, and to call God's people to repentance and faithfulness. My point in saying all of this is this, that God is still inviting his people, the church, to be a people of justice, to be a people of generosity. The biblical definition for this word, justice, is the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, there should be consequences. I should pay the consequences. Yet most often in the Bible, this word refers to restorative justice. It actually means going a step further and in, in seeing, pursuing, and seeking vulnerable people who are taking advantage, who have, are being mistreated and helping them. And the question is, is, why should we care? The Bible has a fascinating response to that question. Page one of the Bible says that humans are said apart from all other creatures because we bear the image of God. So this this identity is the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. Every single human, we are all equal before God and we all have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. This in itself is a whole other sermon, but nevertheless, God is inviting you and me to become a people of justice and generosity. And I would challenge us to not fail like Israel did, that they needed the prophets to denounce their failure. Now, how are we seeking to do this at Taproot? Let me say this. We don't have the market in this. We're not going to do it perfectly but we're going to try to be involved in justice and generosity. One way is this. It's our partnership with Highland High School. For some reason, God has entrusted us with this relationship with the ESL class at Highline. We want to steward that well. We want to care and love for those kids who are 
all of them immigrants who are here learning a language, learning a culture, learning American high school. Scary. And we get a chance to love them, to care for them, to pray for them, to be in relationship with them. How are we seeking to do this as well at Taproot? Transform Burien. We have been doing Transform Burien for a long time, haven't we? And when you do something like that for a long time, what happens? It becomes familiar. It becomes, oh, it's one more meal. I got to go and serve. I got to go and do this. But it's a big deal. This is one way that we can show and be a people of justice and generosity to our community. These people who are experiencing all kinds of brokenness and homelessness and, 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 homelessness and poverty, we get to go and serve them and love them once a month. We are trying to be a people of justice and generosity with our partnership with CareNet. Every single Tuesday, there is a, a, a bus in our parking lot who is providing compassionate support for women and men who are faced with difficult pregnancy decisions. And they are pointing them to Christ. They are pointing them to the giver of life. And this happens weekly in our parking lot. And those guys need uh, uh, counselors. Those guys need people to be involved, people to be around. That's another way. And lastly, our bilingual gathering. We believe that every person is made in the image of God. And we are praying that God would bless us with diversity. And that is a simple way that we're trying to see that happen. We're singing in Spanish singing in English, preaching in Spanish. Why? Why? Because God has invited us to be this people of generosity and justice. And we don't want to fail in doing those things. Now, those are four simple ways. There are probably a billion more. There are more and better ways of how we can do this. Those are simple ways we're trying to accomplish this. So I encourage you, get involved. Get involved. So I said a lot today. Let me say the last three things that I talked about in application. If you're not a Christian, today, turn to Jesus. If you're a Christian and you are stuck in sin, today, turn to Jesus. There is hope. There's restoration. There's forgiveness. There's grace. For all of us who are followers of Christ, our mission. We, we have been commissioned by God to go and speak on his behalf as his representatives. And what should be our message? Jesus, he's come. And lastly, we ought to be a people who bring justice into injustice. We ought to be a people that is known and marked by justice and generosity. And there are just a few ways that I mentioned in how we're trying to accomplish this in this church. And that's it. <laughs> now let's respond. Let's worship Christ. He's the one that the prophets foretold was going to come. And he came. Our Messiah, our Savior, our King, he came. He is the judge. Yes, but he also is the restorer. He is the one who redeems. And he has delivered us. 
So we should worship him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your words. Lord, today I just, I just want to ask you, Lord, that you would do work that, is only, that only you are capable of doing. If there are people in this room today, Lord, that do not know you, help them to see the beauty of Christ. May they help them to give them, give them faith to, to believe in you and, and would you save people today. If there are people in this room who are struggling, who are stuck in habitual sin, who are stuck in a cycle that it just seems like they can't break. Today, I pray for, that you would bring freedom. Today, Lord, I pray that you would bring healing. Today, I pray that it would be a new start. Today, I pray it would be the day that uh, there is light shown into those dark, secret places of our sin. Father, I pray for us who call ourselves followers of Christ. You have been, you've given, you've given us a mission. You have asked us to go be your representatives, to go and reflect your image and your ways and your character to the people around us. We pray for people to come to know Jesus in Burien. We pray for people to come to know Jesus in the South End through us. Help us to be a people who love our neighbors well, who are lavishly hospitable, who are engaging people with your life, through our life. Give us opportunities, Lord, to share the gospel. Give us gospel ears to hear the stories of the people around us and then to connect them to your great story and introduce them to you, the King. And help us, God, as well, to be a people of justice, to be a people of generosity, Lord. We don't, we're not going to do it perfectly. We won't. We're going to make mistakes. But you've called us to be those kinds of people. Help us to do that, Lord. Would you bless the, 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 the endeavors we're trying to pursue with, with Highland and with Transform Burian and with, with uh, the Bilingual Gathering and with CareNet. Bless those ministries, God. May lots and lots of people be, be cared for and shown generosity and shown justice through Taproot. And would you use that for your glory? And we thank you that you've come. You've come for us. That's the greatest news in the world. I pray this in your name.